One of the things that makes me like John's gospel so much is how he often gives us details and accounts that the other gospel writers don't cover. Today's another instance of that. We have the appearance of Jesus after the resurrection to Thomas. And it makes sense that John would include this account in his gospel because it fits hand in glove with John's purpose for writing his gospel. It's a really valuable account here. And it's another one of those things that helps lend credibility to the scriptures. It's one of those weak details. If you remember when we were talking about the resurrection, I mentioned to you that uh, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women and what a, what a weak detail that was, because women weren't viewed as credible witnesses. Well, here we have a very unglamorous account of a doubting, disbelieving disciple, someone refusing to believe. Now, why in the world would you include this detail in your account unless it was true, unless it really happened this way? Because if you're going to fabricate something... If you're going to make up a story, surely it would have been a stronger story if you had left out the doubter, the skeptic. So its inclusion actually helps make the case for the Bible's authenticity and its reliability. It makes that case stronger. This account of Thomas also has the possibility, the potential of making us stronger. Stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. To that end, may God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible an authoritative word. Let's pray. Oh God, would you do just that this morning? Would you, Holy Spirit, be convincing us that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God, and that by believing that we might have life in his name? And God, for some, may that be the very first moment of their lives, new life, born again, justified and adopted. For others of us, Lord, may it be continuing, eternal, 
and abundant life. But Father, may we all find life in his name and through this, his word, we ask this morning. Amen. Please be seated. In these few verses this morning, we have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Indeed, we have the climax of the entire gospel in these verses this morning. But it starts out with what seems like a bit of an accident. Verse 24, Thomas wasn't with them. Last week we saw how on Easter night, Jesus suddenly, perhaps miraculously, appeared with the disciples as they were hiding in fear, and he offered to them peace. But Thomas wasn't with them. He missed out. He didn't see Jesus. Now, we're not told why. I don't think speculating would help. Whatever the reason, this isn't a whoops on God's part. This isn't an oversight. It's not an accident. It is another reminder of God's sovereign grace at work. You see, we're actually going to benefit from Thomas's absence that night. It goes even deeper than that, actually. We're going to benefit from Thomas's doubt and disbelief. His sin is going to serve us. And the only way that that's possible is that in... God's sovereignty, he has the power, he has the ability to even take our sin and failure and to use it, to work it for our good and for his glory. And so as we dig into this passage this morning, I want you to be mindful of that. I want you to be watching for the sovereign and gracious hand of God at work. So the first thing on our agenda this morning, we need to figure out what to do with Thomas. What do we make of this guy? Is he a misfit? Or is he a model for us to follow? All right, so what do we know about him? Well, we've seen him twice already in this gospel. And neither time is necessarily all that flattering, depending on how you read those accounts. Uh, Back in chapter 11, uh, when Jesus finds out that Lazarus has died, he says, all right, we're going. We're going to where Lazarus is. We're going into some pretty hostile territory there close to Jerusalem. And John records for us Thomas's reply. John 11:16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, "Let us also go that we may die with him." Now, how one reads this makes a world of difference in what we think of Thomas. On the one hand, this could be an incredible display of bravery and courage and allegiance to Jesus. You know, something that might come out of Braveheart or something. Let's go. We're ready to die with him. Fist pumping, adrenaline flowing. Or it could be eye rolling, sarcasm dripping. Great. This is going to end up well. Now, I know which way I read this, but that might be because that's how I read most of life. The other place that we see Thomas is not much more promising. 
in the farewell discourse where Jesus is trying to get the disciples ready, trying to get them to understand about his coming departure, telling them about the fact that he's going to prepare a place, and he tells them, and you know the way, because what he's getting at is that he's the way. That's what he's hoping they've been picking up on all along, is that he's the way. Uh, John again records Thomas's reply. John 14, 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Again, it depends on how you read it. Perhaps we could read this as a, as a desperate appeal on Thomas's part for information that he doesn't have. Right? Lord, we don't know. How can we know? Or it could be a little salty, perhaps with another eye roll. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? It's hard to say with 100% certainty, but today, these verses today, it's much more black and white. There's not much room for different interpretation or, or reading it with a positive spin on it. So Thomas missed out on that first appearance of Jesus to the rest of the disciples on Easter night in the locked room. Verse 25 says the disciples told him we have seen the Lord. Now, a grammar lesson for you real quickly. It's not a big one. There's a verb tense called the imperfect tense. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the verb. It just means we're talking about continued, ongoing, repeated action. So in the movie Forrest Gump, Forrest doesn't just run. He doesn't go for a run. He runs and he runs and he continues to run and he keeps on running. All right, that's the imperfect tense. Here it says the disciples told him. Well, that's in the imperfect tense, actually. They told him and they told him again and they kept on telling him, we've seen the Lord. He's alive. Did their best to try to convince this man, but Thomas refuses to believe. He says, nope, sorry, not buying it. And we're not told why. Perhaps he thinks that they've been duped. Perhaps he thinks that they're just confused. They saw a ghost. They saw a spirit. They thought it was really Jesus. But of course it's, it wasn't. It couldn't be. See, Thomas is just too smart for that. He's too smart to be fooled like they have also been fooled. Or maybe it's worse than that. Maybe he thinks they're trying to deceive him. They're trying to pull one over on him. Why on earth would they do that? But he is adamant. I will never believe. And he's demanding, if you look at the rest of verse 25, I'll never believe unless my conditions for belief are met. And so we refer to him as doubting Thomas. Now, I need to say two things about Thomas's doubt, about his disbelief. They're not really contradictory things, but they are two different vantage points that are both true. Number one, Thomas's doubt and disbelief are damnable. Why? Can he not believe, number one, what Jesus himself said and predicted in advance? 
I'm going to die. The third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. Why could he not believe that? Why can he not believe his brothers? Why can he not believe his fellow disciples that keep on telling him he's alive? We've really seen him. Uh, J.C. Ryle, uh, author, pastor, when he was writing about this, he said, Thomas refused to believe the testimony of 10 competent witnesses, 10 true friends and brothers who had nothing to gain in deceiving him. That Thomas continues to doubt that he refuses to believe this is not okay. Calvin is rather withering in his assessment of of Thomas. He calls him slow and reluctant and obstinate. He calls him proud and contemptuous. And he says his stupidity was astonishing and monstrous. Thomas is a monster in his unbelief. So that's the first vantage point. It's bad. Let's not whitewash it. It's bad. But here's the second vantage point about Thomas' doubt. Calvin's also careful to point out at the end of his withering assessment that none of these terrible things is unique to Thomas. His disbelief isn't rare or uncommon. In fact, it's natural to fallen men. All of this terrible, withering assessment is true of us. None of us believes on our own. None of us connects the dots. None of us casts aside our hang-ups and our objections without major help doing so. Thomas doesn't believe until Jesus powerfully intervenes. We don't believe until we have similar divine intervention. Now, we don't get a physical appearance of Jesus like Thomas and the other disciples did, but the intervention we get is no less supernatural and it's no less essential. So we ought next to look at this sympathetic savior and see just how he intervenes in Thomas's life. Verse 26 says that eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them again. And he said again, for the third time now, peace be with you. Last week we saw how he didn't show up ready to blister them for their desertion. This week he doesn't show up ready to blister Thomas for his disbelief. He doesn't come into the room and say, where is that miserable excuse for a disciple? Let me talk to Thomas now. He doesn't say, how dare you disbelieve? He doesn't say, how dare you give an ultimatum? He says... Peace. And what happens here is astonishing on so many levels. Because when Jesus comes in, not only does he not rip into Thomas for his refusal to believe, but he comes and he immediately complies with that ultimatum. No one even had to tell Jesus about it. He just knew. He knew of Thomas's brazen 
demand. He already knew, just like he knows all about all of our weaknesses. And he doesn't reject us or despise us because of our weaknesses either. See, our, our weakness does not elicit from Jesus repulsion. Our weakness elicits from Jesus humility, great condescension. I mentioned to you earlier, this passage has the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Could there be any greater condescension by Jesus? Right? N- never mind taking on flesh, never mind being scourged and spit upon, Never mind being executed and being buried in a borrowed tomb. Thomas's demands here are out of bounds. They're a horrible invasion of, uh, of privacy, of, of personal space. You know when you're out in public with your kids and they, they go up to someone and they say something or ask something that just makes you cringe and you say, oh, don't say that. Oh, I was with one of my children who will remain nameless in a public space one time. And this child walks up to a woman with a very low hanging bosom and pats that very low hanging bosom and says, is there a baby in your tummy? And once my heart started beating again, there was nothing to be done other than grab the child and run away as fast as I could. Thomas's crass, brazen demands are so much worse. Think of the indignity. Think of the gall of saying, I'm going to refuse to believe until I can poke my finger in the hole in his hand. Better yet, I want to jab my hand in the hole that that spear created. Then maybe I'll believe. Good grief. And even at this, Jesus doesn't bow up. He doesn't slam his fist down to say, enough is enough. I'll have no more of this. No, he he offers his hands. He pulls up his tunic and he says, here. Here. That you may believe that You may stop doubting, I'll allow myself to be violated yet again. Name me one other God of any religion in the world who would ever do that. Who would ever stoop so low. Perhaps it was that stunning condescension that finally got through to Thomas that arrested his unbelief, that finally destroyed his doubt. Because what comes next is the highest of the highs. What comes next is perhaps 
the Gospels, maybe even the whole Bible's most complete and comprehensive confession of who Jesus is. Verse 28, Thomas sees this offer, this condescension, and he says, my Lord and my God. If Thomas was a misfit in his doubt, he is a model in his confession. My Lord and my God, Jesus is Lord. It made me think about how Paul beautifully describes the Lordship of Jesus in Philippians 2. Interestingly enough, it's on the heels of him talking about his great humility and condescension. He says it's because of that humility that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, he's Lord. And this does indeed bring great glory to the Father. That's been another big concern of this gospel. It's been a big concern of Jesus is that people see and understand the plan. That the Son and the Father share the same glory. Uh, John chapter 5 verse 23. uh, Here's part of the plan, Jesus says, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So Thomas confesses that Jesus is Lord, but he's not just Lord, he's also God. So mission accomplished as far as the prologue of this gospel, no? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And to round out the completeness, the the perfection even of this confession, is that Thomas owns it. For himself. He's not just Lord. He's not just God. He's my Lord. And he's my God. This is personal. So I want you to think about your own confession of who you say Jesus is. And I want you to think about the confession that you're hoping that others in your life might have. That you're hoping that the, the children at the Good News Club might have. That you're hoping that your co-worker or your friend might have. It needs all aspects of Thomas's confession to be complete. Yes, they need to know accurately who Jesus is, that he is in fact God in the flesh. The son who condescended that he might die in our place for our sins. But it's possible to know that intellectually and it never changed your life. We've also got to bend the knee. Yes, he's God, but he's also Lord. I have to know who he is and I have to submit to who he is. These two cannot be separated. They're they're incredibly linked together in the gospel. As Lord, he calls the shots. He reorders and reorients everything about my life. Nothing belongs to me anymore. It's all under his domain and rule. Now, why in the world would I go along with that? Why would I willingly submit to that lordship? And here's how it's incredibly and inseparably linked in the gospel. I submit to that lordship because I'm gobsmacked by the fact that God himself would stoop so low to rescue me. That God himself would take on flesh, would suffer and sacrifice so much 
for me. That he would rescue me because he delights in me. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? Confession has to accurately represent who Jesus is. It's got to willingly and completely submit to who he is, and it's got to be personal. We've each got to own it. My Lord and my God. And this is the point of John's gospel. This is the purpose for which he writes. Jesus did many other things, but I've included these so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. See, John had us in mind when he wrote. He wanted us to have responses like Thomas ultimately had. He wants us to have life in Jesus. He wants our faith to be firmly fixed on him. And that's what Jesus is alluding to as well back in 29 when he says, when he asked Thomas, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, who got to see? Everybody who was there. Who hasn't seen us? Now, I'm not sure how much of a rebuke Jesus intends for Thomas in that verse. I think there is an element of correction, an element of, of, of rebuke there. Now, obviously, the whole encounter is just dripping and oozing with grace. But there is a sense in which Thomas should have believed. He should have believed the witness and testimony of the other disciples. He should have taken them at their word just like he should have taken Jesus at his word. So what Jesus is really doing here is, is, is instructing us as to what the foundation of our faith has to be. And it's, it's somewhat of a transition point in history because all those that were there right then, they got to see the risen Christ. But when you look at the grand scheme of things, truth is people who actually got to see the risen Christ is a teeny, teeny, tiny fraction of all who would believe. They got to believe because of actually seeing him in the flesh. The rest of us believe because we have heard the testimony of those who actually saw him. And that's the essence of faith, is it not? Not what we see, but what we can't see. Hebrews 11.1 Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, if we can't see, how do we ever come to faith? Paul tells us explicitly, Romans 10. This is important. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, the foundation of our faith is not some experience. The foundation of our faith is not some feeling, warm, fuzzy, or otherwise. The foundation of our faith is not something that we can perceive with the senses. The only unshakable and certain foundation of our faith is the Word of God. The very testimony of these eyewitnesses 
written down by human authors as the Holy Spirit carried them along, and it's effective, y'all. It always does its job. See, part of what Jesus is saying there in that verse 29 is that we're not to be pitied because we didn't get to see Jesus. Our faith isn't less than just because it comes from hearing. Peter wanted us to know that too. That's why he wrote in his first letter, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Right? It is glorious that we believe having not seen Jesus, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, we all doubt and disbelieve. That's our nature. We're just like Thomas. We haven't been able to see Jesus like Thomas did. But thanks be to God that we have his word. His living and abiding word so that when God divinely intervenes in each of our lives and wakes us from our slumber, causes our blindness to cease, the Holy Spirit causes the word to come alive in our hearts as the foundation of our faith and the destruction of our doubt. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you for its efficacy. It does what you intended it to do. Thank you for its power. We thank you that in the pages of Scripture we do, in fact, see Jesus. Would you grant by the power of your Spirit right now that each of us sees him? And that as we come to the table now, would you grant that each of us have faith to feed upon him there as he's present in the sacrament? Would you bless us in that way for our good and for your glory? Amen.